Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Jason Forrest. Jason is the CEO of the Forrest Performance Group. Jason works with companies to maximize their sales effectiveness through a combination of training, hiring, and cultural building. Sounds interesting, Bela. Let's jump right into the interview. Hello, listeners. Today's guest is Jason Forrest. He runs the Forrest Performance Group, where he advises and coaches leaders, managers, and other individuals and companies about culture, about great places to work, or how to make your business a great place to work, uh, and other really important things. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, sure. Thanks for being a guest. So let me ask you the first question that I usually lead off with. Uh, if you're at a social event, a non-work-related social event, and you get introduced to someone, and after the introductions, they go, Jason, what do you do? How do you answer that question? <laughs> well, since I, I am a sales trainer, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably thinking about this the most, but I usually say something like this, that, that um, you know, my, my company is the company that, that you bring in when you're trying to scale your company fast. And we do that in three ways. Number one, we'll help you, fire, we'll help you hire the ultimate sales warrior. We'll find the ultimate sales warrior for you. Use third-party assessments to make sure they're better than half your existing team. And then uh, put them through our 90-day warrior selling training program. Uh, we also can take that same warrior selling training program and work with your existing salespeople, helping them increase their conversion rate. And then the third thing is we have a sales management program where we can teach your sales managers how to be the Nick Saban, Pete Carroll, and Bill Belichick of coaching. Yeah, yeah, excellent. You know, I think it's, that's one aspect that young entrepreneurs often overlook. Uh, many of them sort of have this mindset that my product is so good, it's going to sell itself. And I think many of them soon discover that that's not the truth. Um, what size companies do you typically work with, Jason? I mean, that's a great question. So we, we, really, we really enjoy just a small uh, startup company that's got, you know, got a couple of salespeople and we help them grow. Uh, but then we, we also work with many, many, many multi-billion dollar companies like Myers, the big plastic company. We've got... Uh, Komatsu, the big heavy machinery company, Ritchie Brothers, a big heavy machinery company, company BMC, a big lumber company. Uh, we work with big home builders. So we're, uh, so again, we, we, we're really on the, on the, the multi-billion dollar side, but then we have plenty of, of, um, you know, more of the companies that are in that, let's say, you know, two to $10 million range and they really want to scale. Yeah. So if you're working with new startups and you're working with large companies, uh, what do you see as sort of the major differences in, in their approach to, you know, selling their products and sales and team building and, and getting their, their, you know, sales force and their whole organization uh, in place? What are the different ways, uh, or I should say, let me ask it a different way. How does a company need to transition as it moves from a small two or three person company to let's say a hundred person company? Well, it's a great question. There's a lot of things they need to do. I mean, when it comes to systems and processes, I mean, one of the biggest problems with small organizations is they, they haven't established yet the kind of structure for a sales professional to be successful. What I mean by that is they don't have just like the basic tools, you know, they don't have like um, a LinkedIn navigator account. They don't have, you know, a CRM set up yet and they don't have, um, you know, the compensation plan figured out yet. So there's just kind of like the basic blocking and tackling. And, and so what happens is, is they're going to keep having a lot of turnover. It's what we see until they get that culture, those systems, those tools set up. Because if you hire a sales warrior, you bring in these top salespeople that we we recruit. They're they're expecting to work for a winning team with winning systems and tools. So I would say it's number one. Number two is you, you really need to have a, a sales manager that focuses on coaching. So when, when you're a smaller organization, it's usually like the founder that does maybe some of the managing and, and, uh, but that's really the kind of the worst person to do it. You really need to have a dedicated coach that is working with the salespeople to train them, to develop them, to grow them and make that a primary focus, uh, I think is important. And then I, I would say number three is, is start developing even other things to help grow the company as far as presence clubs and uh, different awards, uh, reward structures. Uh, that can that can help now, but with that said, though, 
here's an interesting paradox is that the advice that I give to big companies is they already have all those tools and systems in a lot of cases, most cases, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're actually behind the times when it comes to the innovative stuff because they're like the 800 pound gorilla. And so they kind of rely on their brand to help them sell things. So in their case, the problem with them is that sometimes the big 800 pound gorillas, they, they, um, they're getting beat by the little guys because the little guys have this gorilla warfare. You know, they, a lot of times the little guys will actually hire more relentless sales warriors. They'll actually hire more, more relentless. They'll actually give them kind of more autonomy and freedom. And, and, um, and so, you know, it's interesting because the advice I give to the, the big companies that we serve is, Hey, let's, let's look at how we can increase the training, uh, like the little companies do. And if you can increase the training and, and create sales warriors and your big brand, then you really would be unpenetrable. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm a small company and you know, we've been going at it for a couple of years, we have a half a dozen, maybe a dozen employees and, and we have no systems in place. We really have no processes in place. We maybe have some KPIs, you know, key performance indicators that we look at, but the whole thing is, is not really uh, very functional and very organized. And now I need to make this transition to maybe a much more structured way of doing things. And in many ways, that's a big cultural change. People are really going to have to change the way they do things. How do you approach something like that? Well, first off, culture is nothing. My definition of culture is, is what happens behind the boss's back. So that's <laughs> great. I haven't heard that before. That's good. <laughs> well, that's my Jasonism there. So, so I always tell people you, you have the culture you want as if you have 100% certainty that when the boss is around, uh, sorry, when the boss is not around, that people are working as if the boss is what the boss was around. The culture you don't want is when you were unsure about that. And then it's interesting. I'll do big keynotes and, and I'll say, so raise your hand if you feel like you have the culture you that you feel like you want. So they think they think they have that culture that people are are working as if the boss was around. And then I say, great. Now, now raise your hand if your leadership team sends out an email that says, Hey, the boss is in town. Keep make sure everyone's prepared for that. Yeah. And they all and a lot of them raised their hand. I said, look, if you're sending out emails announcing the boss is in town, you don't have the culture you want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a company I used to work for, uh, that I would, I described it as they had an early warning system in place (laughs) as the, as the boss would be coming into one building or another building or walking down this aisle way or that aisle way or that department. So they had this whole, whole infrastructure in place, uh, to let people know that the boss was going to show up in their place shortly. So, yeah. So, so think about, think about, think about the product, the productivity and the profitability leaks in that organization that they're putting so much energy and effort into that earning that early warning system that what if they could put that same productivity into just being more efficient, effective at their job. Sure. Sure. So there's clearly an, an issue there, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what is a small company? What are the types of things or tools that, that I have or can do to help me make this transition, to get people to accept change, to say, you know what, this is how we've been doing it, but now, now we're growing up. We need to start doing things slightly differently. And I can remember in, from my entrepreneurial days, having started several companies, you know, I, I remember the first year there was like five of us in the company and every day we had lunch together. So that was our communication vehicle. Everybody knew everything that was going on in the business and when we got to like 30 or 40 people, all of a sudden, everyone didn't know what was going on. And jobs often get much narrower as companies grow and people need to give things up. So what type of suggestions do you have for, for people to address some of those issues? I mean, I think what you just said is, is perfect. I think, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of creating huddles in organizations. That's what we do for our company. And we, we teach that to other people. So, you know, so for example, a daily huddle um, is done at the leadership level. And, and, and that huddle would have maybe five or six people in it. And then, then those department heads, those VPs would then huddle with their direct reports. And then potentially those direct reports would huddle with their direct reports. And so, so there's a, a, every day there's a very quick conversation loop or feedback loop that's going on. That's cascading, you know, from the top down and from the bottom up and, 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 uh, the, the huddle questions are very simple. It's, you know, what is your focus for today? Um, why is that your focus? 
how are you going to get there? And where are you stuck? Is there anything you need to, in order to accomplish your focus? And usually, um, well, when it comes to being stuck, there's only one of two reasons why they're stuck. It's either an internal thing or an external thing, meaning that internally they are lacking a, an internal resource inside of their own skill set, or it's an external thing that they're waiting on a customer or waiting on another department in order to get something done. Well, that's huge because then those huddle groups can then have that conversation with, you know, someone else, another department head, right? And so they take that responsibility of, hey, we're going to make decisions at least on an every 24 hour basis versus most companies, they make decisions every week or two weeks or a month. Right, right. Yeah. As, as you were talking about the daily huddle, it, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Oh, we used to do that like once a week in this company. And then in that company, it was once every other week. And then in this company, it was once a month. Right. So so you're turning the crank, iterating the cycle just once a month. So this notion of doing it quick is really important. Correct. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so when you work with a small company, pre predominantly our audience is, you know, small business owners, entrepreneurs. Uh, what's the typical length of an engagement you guys do? How does it work? Kind of walk me through that. How does how does the process begin? Sort of, you know, take me through that. Sure. So, so we have two, two options, right? So on the recruiting side and the training side, so let's just go with the recruiting side for now. So on the sales recruiting side, uh, step one is that we use third party behavioral based assessments to measure the sales team that they already have. So we're, we're looking for, for several things, but, uh, four things specifically, I call them gumps. So goal oriented, unleashed, unleashed of their self doubts, self-image issues, stories, reluctances, and rules. M stands for motivated, uh, the energy to prospect. And then P stands for procedural-based. So procedural-based means that these are salespeople that have the ability to follow a process. So uh, I have a, about a thousand hour certification in neuro-linguistic programming. And neuro stands for brain, linguistic stands for our speech patterns. And what's been proven is that by the way we speak is a window into how we think which then drives how we feel, which drives our motivations and our behaviors and our results. And so, so first, st first step is we do a little bit of an analysis on the existing team so that when we're going out there and finding people, we're only finding people from an objective perspective to make sure they're better than half the existing team. So we'll top grade for them. Uh, then we use these third-party assessments to, uh, to confirm or deny that this, we had the right people um, to make sure there's some integrity and accountability um, we also use plenty of neuro-linguistic programming questions. And then once the candidate is approved, we put them through a 90-day uh, training program called Warrior Selling. It's currently listed as number one in the United States for sales training. So uh, it's, a, it's a pretty robust thing in the sense of combining assessment work, training, and recruiting all in one. Yeah. Now, is there a particular type of uh, um, sales uh, that I'm thinking? Well, uh, let me try to ask the question a little differently. You know, there are some companies that sell products that cost $10 each, and there are some companies that sell products that cost a million dollars each. Uh, is, this, is the sales process or, or the types of people you're looking for different in those occasions? I mean, so, somewhat, but not really. It's interesting, you know? I mean, um, it, a lot of it depends on the company itself and the kind of leads they have coming in. So what I mean is... It, a lot of times these big organizations, they have, they're, they're such a big brand for them that, that those people don't need to do a lot of uh, prospecting. They don't need to do a lot of uh, cold calling and LinkedIn messaging and so forth because they're already so well known that they don't need to do that. And so for those people, they could probably get away with having less goal clarity and motivation and still be pretty, you know, pretty successful as long as they have other attributes. But if you're a, a small company and you don't have a big brand and you aren't no, well known, well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to hire like guerrilla warfare sales professionals that are, that are willing to go out there and, and, and really work it and, and make, make the phone calls. And, and so those, those people are actually really, you know, harder to find, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And what about compensation? Do you have little sort of recommendations for uh, compensating guerrilla, guerrilla warfare type uh, sales folks? I do. I, I, I don't think you have to give them a high base, um, but I do think you have to give them a very high upside. And, um, and so like my comp, for example, in our company is a, you know, it's a, it's a moderate base. Um, it's not too high. 
And, but we, we have an accelerator and that's what we recommend with our, our, a lot of our clients where, um, the, my philosophy is that, um, it's kind of a rich get richer and a poor get poorer comp model, you know? So if you're going to be a top performer for me or one of my clients, I want you to make, you know, more than you could anywhere, anywhere else. Uh, if you're going to be a bottom performer, I want you to, to be broke. <laughs> so, right. so that's, that's kind of the idea, but it, the best, the best, if you, if you want to have it, it what's interesting is if you ever have a salesperson that says, you know, Hey, I don't like your comp model. What I really want is I want a high base and I'm okay to give up some of my, um, upside, some of my, my, my commission don't hire them. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to, I think one of the things I heard you say there is, is you want a, a, a comp plan that differentiates significantly the top performers from the bottom performers. C correct. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. It reminded me of a story of, of back when I was running a business and I was having a board meeting and um, I presented the uh, compensation, uh, the actual compensation for our various different folks in the company. And our top sales guy was, was making like 50% more than I was as president and CEO. And, and one of the board members says, you, you can't do that. I mean, he's making more money than you. And I said, yeah, but he's look at what he's producing. I'm, I'm happy that he's making more money than me. He should be making more money than me if he's, if he's yeah. you know, hitting his goals. And, and, but it's interesting that there is this bias in organizations that you know, want to cap people and, and make sure that they fall within some type of overall limits or structure that someone, person X isn't making more than person Y because that person's been here longer or has more seniority or something, right? But I think what you're saying is, you know, give them a high variable comp and, and allow them to hit grand slam home runs if they can. Yeah, because I mean, because the, the risk is too great uh, to lose those people. Yeah, and it's too exactly. great, right? So, yeah. like in that instance, if, if if you guys would have lost that top producer because you throttled them back, you know, it's just too great. Uh, so we don't want to do that. Uh, but then also, a good belief system people should adopt is stop focusing on how much you're paying and start focusing on how much you're receiving. I'm not sure I understand what you just said. Well, meaning that so often people get stuck on, oh, man, I can't believe I'm paying that person two hundred thousand dollars a year or three hundred thousand dollars a year. I can't believe I'm, I'm paying them so much. So don't focus on that, but instead focus on what you're getting, focus on it. what you're what, focus on the profit that you're receiving. Right. Yes. So, um, so like in my case, we, you know, we figured out my CFO did a great job helping, helping me construct this and we constructed it for our clients. And that is, um, you know, showed us an accelerator, right. Where that, you know, uh, you know, let's say a salesperson, I mean, there's a lot of fixed cost involved in a, in a salesperson when it comes to their tools and technology. So they cost you the most when they're underperforming. And they cost you the least when they are way overperforming, right? right? Right. And so, so if if you can um, tie them to the bloodline that hey, every all these little milestones along the way, we're going to up your percentage of your commission. Well, if you if you're a good CFO can show you like like we saw that that um, like in our case, you know, our 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 percentage com uh, commission starts out at ten percent and then ramps up to twenty percent right. at the highest level. Right. So what that means is, but at the twenty percent, we're still you know, you're, if the person's performing and hitting out of the park, we're still at like a 70% gross, gross margin. Right. Right. That's a great point because the, the contribution margin on those additional dollars they're bringing in, right. It's costing you almost nothing other Correct. than, other than commission <laughs> probably. Uh, Cause they're, they're still using the same tools. Right. They're still, everything's the same. The setup cost is the same, you know, exactly. The fixed cost is the same and the right. var variable cost is very small. So let them share in that, in that, uh, in that higher profit that the company's making. That's a great exactly. point. Yeah. Excellent point. Uh, so Jason, there's, there's lots of sort of sales training, sales recruiting companies and firms and processes and books out there. So what, what makes, what makes a uh, forest group forest performance group uh, different? Well, I mean, the biggest difference is, is probably how we started. So I used to be the head of a, uh, the head of a fortune 500 companies, uh, sales training, um, department. And I tried to find third party vendors out there that could do sales training for us, you know, that I could be certified on. And, and what I found is none of them, uh, did what I was trying to accomplish. So none of them focused on assertive selling. 
Uh, number two, none of them incorporated the mindset piece. And I really feel that, um, that, that selling is, is like the, one of the toughest performance arts. So there's a lot of psychology that, that's, that's involved as far as the rejection and overcoming adversity and overcoming the stories that people had, the excuses, all that stuff. And so I think there's a mindset component. And then also the, the elements of the, the NLP persuasive language. So three things, right? Mindset, process, and language. And what I've learned as well is that a lot of the programs out there, they're actually full of leashes. So they actually cause salespeople to be worse. So for example, some of our competitors will say things like, you know, earn the right to ask a person to buy. Okay, well, how do I even know that? Well, because they're smiling. Okay, so you've never sold a person that's not smiling before, you know? Or, you know, you, you must get them, you must get this person in a face-to-face -face conversation in order to sell them something. Well, during the coronavirus, you can't do that. So what are you gonna do now? So I'm very, I'm very careful about making sure that our training doesn't install limiting beliefs. Yeah, yeah. So Jason, let's just take a step back. Uh, how long have, uh, has Jason, has the Forest Performance Group been around? And I want to talk a little bit more about your background. Sure. So, so we are on our 11th year now, I believe. So 11th year of doing Forest Performance Group. And prior to that, I had a, had a partnership uh, that I broke off from. But, um, but as far as my background, you know, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I grew up in a very sales friendly, sales positive family. My father uh, owns the, one of the oldest jewelry stores in uh, North Dallas and, 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 and uh, been doing that for 40 something years. My mom is a, a speech professor, been teaching public speaking for 50 years. Uh, so I grew up in that debate selling small business world. And then my Sunday school teacher was Zig Ziglar. So I had that going for me. So that was really cool. And, uh, and so I was always kind of, a I was raised a lot around that entrepreneurial spirit and around positive mindset and positive mental attitude and change your, you know, change your thinking, change your life kind of thing. And so I was raised around that. And so that's just, that's been a lot of my background. Yeah. So after school, did you blaze right off on your own and start your own business or take me through that process a little bit? So I did graduate early from college. Um, and I went right into being a stockbroker actually. So well, I was a stockbroker. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It was a lot of selling. Yeah. So I made a hundred cold calls a day did that whole thing. And that's an interesting story actually, because I, um, uh, did that for a couple of years and that was during the whole nine 11 experience and, uh, passed my series seven in 21 days. It was the fastest they'd ever seen a person pass it. And, uh, I was very, very arrogant. And so I had my kind of own belief systems of how to, how to do things. And I just wasn't really that coachable. And anyway, so, uh, about two years into the gig, uh, my boss comes to me and says, um, well, I'm gonna have to let you go. And it's, as you notice, um, you don't have the production that you need in order to succeed here. Um, and I've never seen a guy work so hard and be so bad at this. <laughs> he told me, and he said, he said, the reason why you've stayed on board as long as you have at your current revenue level is because you work harder than anyone, anyone I've ever seen as far as coming early. I mean, I came in at six o'clock in the morning yeah. and worked till eight calling people. I mean, I was just a workaholic and he said, but you're just so stubborn on doing it your own way, you know? And he goes, I let you do it your own way because you work, you work so hard and you're so convinced that your way was right, but it didn't work out for you. And I'm not to let you go now. So, so it was a really good humbling moment for me. Cause he said, you know, if you can just, uh, you know, be more, more coachable about finding, you know, mentors in life that can help you and keep the same effort that you have, the same work ethic that you have, you know, you'll really go somewhere. And so I took that advice and it really meant something to me. I also found the book, Think and Grow Rich, read it cover to cover and changed my life and reading that book. Um, and then immediately got into real estate sales and, and uh, you know, made several hundred thousand dollars in the next 12 months selling real estate. And so I, I really changed, it kind of, that was a big moment for me though, when I got fired that day. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you went from that, was it your own real estate firm or were you an agent with somebody or? No, I work for a home builder. So I work for like selling the, selling the model home. So I did that. Um, and then, and then went into management and then went, became a, a sales trainer for a big, a big, huge home builder, um, called Richmond American homes, MDC holdings and, and created training programs for them. Uh, I was about 25 when I did that and then, um, left on my own, uh, sorry, partnered with another guy to create another training firm left and then did that for about four years. And then like I said, about 11 years ago, uh, started FPG. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I often get either from students or from people I run into is, is they, they're debating on, you know, they have the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, they know they want to do that. 
and they're about ready to graduate and they're trying to decide, should I go work for a larger company for a number of years and then blaze out on my own or should I blaze out on my own now? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I personally think they should um, definitely work for someone else first. That would be my advice. So, I mean, look, you know, you, you can, you can always, you know, you can always use your own experience to try to figure out, you know, how to do something and what works and what doesn't work. But man, if you can leverage the experience of someone else, you know, I mean, the fastest way to learn anything is to model someone else. And, and, and when I got, when I got fired that day at Merrill Lynch, you know, that was the best kind of advice that I was given when I was fired is, is just find someone else that's, it's, that's better, better at this than you are. And then just copy them. And, and I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest things for people to do because they immediately have all these stories in their brain that says, ah, but that person's older than me, or that person doesn't know what I know, or things are different now or whatever. They make up some sort of excuse, but I'm telling you, it's the fastest way to go from where you want, where you are now to where you want to go is find someone that's better than you in the area you want to be in and just copy them. And then once you kind of do it their way and you're you're having the success that they're having, well, then you, now you're liberated to go kind of reinvent and make some tweaks and make it your own, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's almost a form of an apprenticeship is sort of right. Another, it another way. An apprenticeship. We just don't have enough apprenticeships anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we've gotten rid of them in, in most industries. Right. Right. And, and then they throw you into the pool and say sink or swim. And, uh, that, that may or may not be the most efficient way of doing that. <laughs> Correct. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what's in the future for you guys? What, what do you see in your crystal ball, um, in the next uh, couple of years for, uh, for the force performance group? I mean, we, we, we really feel like we're onto something right now disrupting. So we've been a training company a majority of our time here. It's just two years ago is when we started the recruiting side, but you know, we really feel like the recruiting side needs to be disrupted, you know, because, uh, no one else does that. No one else does combines all of it together. They're training, the recruiting, the assessment work all together. And so we really feel like that's the place that we, you know, we want to kind of double down on, uh, which is important, important for us, really helping, helping sales teams scale, you know, by again, finding the best people for them. Um, and then, and then onboarding them, guaranteeing them, training them, coaching them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things I just thought of is that oftentimes, uh, if I put my venture capital hat back on, uh, companies that we've funded and I've worked with, uh, and they're growing and they often, what happens is they take their best salesperson and they make them VP of sales or director of sales, right? So they're no longer going out on the road. They're sitting in an office and, and, you know, they're sort of managing and directing sales. You have thoughts on that? I do, of course. Um, you know, so the whole philosophy is sometimes the best salesperson, you know, makes the worst manager. And, and I would actually probably agree with that, but they do make a great coach. So it, it, you really need to ask yourself, like, what's the job description of what you want this person to do? Because if you want them to be more of a person that sits in a meeting and makes strategic decisions, then it's probably not taking your best salesperson to do that. It's probably taking maybe like a strong let's say B plus player, but so it's more of a, like, let's say a B to B plus player when it comes to their selling, selling ability, but they're an A player when it comes to their uh, integration skills, their ownership skills, their details, their management skills, like very different mindset there. Right. Um, you don't want to, you don't want to take your, your C salesperson that's got great admin skills and make them a manager. And the reason for that is because your salespeople will eat them alive. Yeah. They won't have any respect. So they do have to, they do have to be good enough, you know, uh, meaning that they're, they're, they might not be the number one salesperson out of 10, but they're probably like number, let's say four out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. You know? This notion of concept of making them a coach uh, and, and sort of helping, having them help uh, and spread their skills among some of the other folks. I, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. So that's okay. And I, and one of the books I wrote is called leadership sales coaching, transforming from manager to a coach. And that's one of the things I talked about in that book was exactly that concept that, you know, that if you want to make them a coach and they're a top salesperson, that's okay. But a coach is more of like a trainer. It's more of a, uh, a teacher than it is a, than it is a, a manager of meetings, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Almost back to that apprenticeship program we were sort of talking about. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So Jason, uh, 
we're, I'm going to wrap this up. We've been at it almost a half hour now. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have or other things you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I definitely want to give everyone an offer right now. So I had, I had a book that came out um, uh, in 2019 called The Mindset of a Sales Warrior. And um, it was listed as the best new sales book of the year, which we were excited, very excited about. Um, but you can buy it on Amazon or Audible or if you go to warriormindsetbook.com, warriormindsetbook.com, then you can get the book for free. You just pay shipping and handling. And it's got a bunch of other offers there, guides, goal setting guides, all kinds of other things that you can offer, you can look at as well. And so again, warriormindsetbook.com, uh, you, can, you can get the book for free, just pay shipping and handling. Great, 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 great. I will make sure that's, uh, that's in the show notes for people. Uh, and uh, Jason, hey, you've been a wonderful guest. I've really uh, learned a lot from chatting with you. Uh, you guys have some great uh, processes going there, and I think uh, it's wonderful. Thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Bela, we haven't really talked about sales in a while, and we both know that maximizing sales performance is really important in lots of small organizations. So let's dive in and break down your conversation a bit. What struck you most about your conversation with Jason? You know, Jason had this concept, uh, not an original concept, but <clears throat> I think he emphasized this concept of a sales warrior. <clears throat> In other words, a person who is really focused on sales is a top performer and really goes out there and kind of gets sales and understands how to do that, is very driven. You know, they have a particular mindset. They like variable compensation, meaning... They don't have to have a large base and they want to get a commission and they want to get a commission for sales because they have confidence in their ability to sell. Um, so I thought that was a key thing that sort of struck through. And, and I'll tell you from, from my VC experience, as, as I've seen companies hire, you know, sales individuals, uh, they do tend to fall into one of two categories, right? There's, there's the folks who, who need a, a larger base and they're very comfortable with a large base and a small upside, if you will, in the variable compensation or the commission piece. And there's those folks um, who are really at the other extreme. They're willing to work on a hundred percent commission if if you make the you know the, the 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 potential to hit a home run. And and so I think you want to figure out for your company where's the sweet spot. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here, but I think for different companies. It's, it sort of runs, it runs, it's, it's variable. And, and let, me get, let me try to explain that. If you're a new company with a new product that the market is unfamiliar with, what I mean by that is you have a new product category. That's going to require education of the customer. You're going to have to explain your product to the customer. You're going to have to educate the customer. I mean, we had that situation in one of the companies I started where we started a robotical surgical company, a surgical robot company. And people didn't know what that was 25 years ago. So we had a, we had a long education and a long sales cycle, right? The sales cycle was a year long from the time we, and it was a complicated sales cycle. First, we had to convince the surgeon that they wanted it. And then the surgeon had to convince the department that they needed it. And then from there, we eventually had to go to the president of the hospital and then from the president, I made many presentations to board of directors because it was an $800,000 purchase. So a long sales cycle, right? It's hard to pay people a large variable compensation with that because the sales come few and far between. You have other products where the market understands what the product is. You're just making a better version of it. <laughs> so, so in that case, you know, the, the high variable compensation can make a lot of sense because the sales folks don't have to do a lot of education. They're basically selling your product against the competition. Uh, so anyway, those are sort of my quick thoughts on that. Yeah. In the car business, when, when I was in a partnership with, in that industry, selling cars with a high variable makes a lot of sense because it's a fast time uh, for closing a deal. And it's, um, it's a fairly significant, but not $800,000. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's, in the in the auto retail business there's a lot of that but you know it can also lead to some downsides right for kind of being over aggressive and competing with other salespeople. um so i thought it was interesting that jason also focused on the culture because it does have to be i think this balance between the compensation model but also 
the culture in terms of how you're treating both uh, the employee, uh, the customers, and your fellow employees, right? That you're not stepping on other people's toes, so to speak. Yeah. Um. So to me, you know, thinking about you know when you're a VC, um, how do you advise startups to kind of get their sales? part of their business in order and would you ever advise startups to work with a company like Jason's to to get to get things started so there there was a, a company here uh in the Albany region Albany uh, New York uh that as a VC I wanted to invest in <laughs> these because these guys were I thought they were really good they had a great team and interestingly enough uh they never needed VC money because they sold enough product right they sold product and they put every one of their salespeople regardless of experience, through a program like Jason's. It wasn't Jason's program, but one of these sales training programs. And, and they put everyone through it. And, and the person who ran the sales group there told me it gives everybody the same foundation. So everyone has a certain set of skills. I know what those skills are. Uh, and it gives them structure. So we don't have all these folks who are out freelancing, selling our products in 15 different ways. Right? We sort of have one common set of tools. We have one common set of procedures. And, and like I said, I tried talking to them numerous times on, hey, I, I want to give you guys, I want to invest a million bucks in your company. And they said, we don't need it. <laughs> Which, you know, as a startup, that's the wonderful position to be in. Uh, so I do think there's value in it. I do think there's value in, in, in sort of, of that. And sometimes, you know, when you're a small startup, it's hard to attract top talent sometimes particularly on the sales side, because a sales guy is going, wait a minute, I'm, if they're a sales warrior and they're doing well where they're at, you know, you got to really entice them to come join a small company with high variable comp and their comp may go down. So there is this real challenge there for young companies. And oftentimes you get sales folks who are, who are, maybe not performing as high as they should in the other organizations that they're in. Now we've all seen people switch organizations and they do, they were not doing great at the former one and they do great at the current one that they're in. So, so that's what you're hoping for. But you know, salespeople oftentimes follow the money. And, and so you got to figure out as a new company, what you're going to do. So this company I'm talking about who did very well, was fundamentally hiring relatively inexperienced sales folks, but they were putting them through a sales training program that they found that they thought was very applicable to the product and category that they were sort of in. Yeah, no, I agree, Bela. And, you know, it's it's interesting that some of these sound really cheesy to an outsider and macho and all these things, and I was really turned off at first, um, in my entrepreneurial career when I was exposed to some of these, but when you look at what they teach and the good ones, and I'm sure Jason's do too, really focus on listening to the customer and doing an assessment of what their needs are and really trying to understand what their needs are rather than trying to push them into something that they don't really want. And the best salespeople do listen and do figure out how they can meet the needs um, of their customers. Because in the long run, if the customer walks away and is not happy with what they bought, okay, they're never going to come back to you again. And in a lot of businesses, this idea of a repeat customer and a happy customer and good word of mouth is really important. So yeah, the process of understanding the customer and closing a sale and being diligent and kind of capturing all the information about the customer interactions, these are kind of consistent pieces of sales training. And they are important. Like you said, Bela, that everybody's following the same process. So especially if one salesperson leaves or has another client that the other salesperson can pick up, and the customer's having a consistent experience. They don't feel like um, they're not being well taken care of. So there's a lot of these components in there that are really important. And, um, you know, I, again, maybe other some of our listeners share kind of this, oh, I wouldn't want to do this. But it is really important, as you said. And you, the, the example you're talking about is a great example where, you know, a lot of people, not everybody's a salesperson, and I know that, but I think a lot of people can improve their sales skills, or almost everybody can improve their sales skills by going through one of these these programs and learning about sales as a process. Yeah. Hey, Mike, let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, in, in Germany there, for people who are getting a business degree, like here in the United States, a lot of folks who get some significant percentage of individuals who graduate with a business degree end up going into sales. 
uh, of some sort. Do you guys teach sales techniques over there in Germany? Is there a course in sales 101? Uh, things so, like you were just talking about, you know, sort of listening to the customer, understanding their needs, how to close, all that type of stuff. Yeah, so it's interesting. So there isn't, there is um, some components of this in some of our marketing courses. It kind of is folded into marketing, at least at my school. I don't want to speak for all of Germany. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of the sales functions um, are done by employees who go through the apprenticeship program rather than the university. Um, so it's not so common. It's much more common to see a sales class at a U.S. university than it is at a German university. It's much more common to see people going through apprentices get the sales training that you're talking about as part of that apprenticeship. So a salesperson in a in a store or in a bank um, that in the U.S. would get a college degree to do that um, goes through the apprentice system instead and doesn't necessarily have a college degree. Or we have these things where you do both a college degree and an apprenticeship, uh, dual, essentially a dual yeah. studies. Yeah. Um, so that's really where you see the more specific sales training. So I don't teach it. We don't teach it necessarily to the level that I think you're talking about. There, there's a general discussion of sales and selling principles. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of this two tiered system here, which is really yeah. fascinating. I, th I think the other thing I, I want to chat about just for a second, as you're, as you're hiring sales folks and you're thinking about building out a sales organization within your company, I, I think you mentioned there's certain commonalities, right? Listening to the customer, uh, understanding what their needs are, uh, figuring out who the decision maker is, and you know, making sure that they have the information they need. Those things are common. But there are other things that I think are very different. I go back to my example of if you're selling something that costs 800000 or a million dollars each, and it's a multi-level sales process, right? I had to start with the physician, the surgeon, and then from the surgeon to the department, the department to, you know, so up the chain all the way to the board. That's a very different set of sales techniques and skills than, as you were saying, selling cars. So there's some commonality, but they're very different, and it takes different types of people. So I think you want to if you're looking to hire sales folks, I think trying to take someone who's used to selling a million dollar pieces of hardware and equipment in a multi-level sales process and have them sell cars is a high risk endeavor. It may work and hopefully it will, but it's still a high risk. You're much better off finding people who are selling nuts, not necessarily from the same industry and the same products, but products that have similar characteristics from the point of view of who makes the decision, how much does it cost, you know, is it a capital item, is it an expense item, right? Because oftentimes budget things for in large companies decide how easy it is to buy something and how complicated it is to buy something, et cetera. So I think those are the things you want to really focus on when you're thinking about where you're gonna where you're gonna recruit sales folks from and the skill set and experience they bring to the table. Yeah. And the culture, is this a lone wolf kind of operation where each person goes out and does it themselves? Or is it truly a sales team? And with a lot of these larger purchases, like you're talking about, it's not an individual salesperson. It's a sales team that services the client. Um, and that's really important too, because when it's really technical, you might have a technology person, you might have a interface person, you might have a support person. So there might be different people that are involved in the sales process as well. So I think we're at the same point on this is, you know, I really look at it not as go to sales training, but it's a holistic process when you're going through the startup phases, right? And you're building a business. Um, it's strategy. It's having the right people it's in place and it's training those people and having the right compensation model. All four of those are really important. Um, and you have to look at them, I think, as a whole. Uh, and that's where I think as a, as a any kind of startup coach or a, a VC advising a company or, or whatever role you're playing, it's really important to get people to think about the nature of the sales uh, relationships, the nature of the product they're selling who the right people are that they want to place in, what training they want to give and what comp model. And you have to look at all those together rather than any one in, in an individual way. Um, so that's kind of why I think a good sales consultant can help or not a, a kind of a selling consultant, not necessarily somebody who's just going to sell you training, right? Is you might want somebody to help you with the whole thing and somebody that's got experience working with selling in your industry, 
like you said, if it's medical devices or whether it's cars or whether it's clothes, right? The selling process has some commonalities, but it's also got some big differences. And you don't want somebody who's used to selling medical devices telling you how to set up a clothing retailer. Right. right? Exactly right. Exactly right. Hey, Mike, what, what do you think about the comments he made about compensation? You know, again, it's um, it's a little bit scary and it's always an interesting issue for me. I mean, seeing it from the startups that I was involved in, figuring out the right compensation model is really important. And I do I do agree that high variable comp focuses people on performance. It focuses people on the KPIs that you were talking about that are really important. But in a culture that isn't totally functional, it can really result in people competing in a negative way and cutting corners to hit short term targets. Um, some companies are just are churn companies and they just need to, they're very short term oriented um, and they just need to meet their quarterly numbers and they're happy and they don't care what the long run implications are. Uh, and those are typically, I think, companies that are in trouble. And I think companies that are interested in building long term relationships with their, um, with their company, with their clients to have, you know, longer term relationships with their employees because you want, uh, you know, their networks are your networks and, uh, the people that they connect with, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're representing you. Um, so I think in these cases, it's just got to be figuring out the right blend of short-term and long-term comp. Um, I like the conversations you're having about not putting limits on. I think a great salesperson should make more than the CEO sometimes, in all honesty. And I think you can't be afraid of that. Um, but I think anytime you start to be secretive about comp, anytime you start to get the kind of idea about jealousy and not focusing on you know, what Jason said, what, what they're bringing in, right. Rather than just, you know, what they're, what they're taking out is, is really important. So, you know, I don't, one size doesn't fit all. I guess that's the thing that I learned is I wouldn't want to tell everybody, Oh yeah, go for a high comp, you know, a high variable comp model. It really depends. And there really can be some ways to balance it and to bring in a variety of KPIs um, in terms of being a good team player, in terms of treating customers really well. In the long run, I think that comes out in the in the in a variable comp model that if you're a jerk and if you don't treat your customers well, if you're just really pushy and you make the sale in the short term but not in the long term, that will come out in your numbers. Um, but it's nice to have some balance there, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my two cents on that. What do you think? So do you think, Mike, that within one organization that I could have different comp models for different salespeople? I, you know, again, one size doesn't fits all. And I've been involved in a couple of organizations where they do have some di different people are working under different comp models because, again, it's part of a sales team. You, you have two different people and they have two different roles in the sales organization. It might make totally sense to have them on different compensation models, right? Why, why fit a square peg in a round hole? Um, yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, I guess it somewhat goes back to pick, picking the right people for the right roles. And, you know, I think, you know, Jason's got a psychology oriented kind of, approach to selling and this idea of mindsets is you know it's a combination of knowledge skills and attributes and a, a state versus trait kind of approach to how people's um, brains work and how they interact with other people um, which is fascinating and great to use some of that science um, in building a sales team but it, it, there's something to that right some people don't do well under a, a variable a high variable compensation model some people need that security and they play a vital role in the sales team right so, you know, I'm a big believer in one size doesn't fit all, but I've seen where then if people are getting paid in different ways and people are always going to talk about it, you never can keep your comp model secret, even if people are signing things and that's a bad approach, but then you get sometimes people are jealous or people think people are lazy. So this is where the culture part is important, where you have to recognize that people bring different things to the table and might get compensated in different ways. Yeah. So complicated question, Bela. Um, and, and I, but I think where you're heading is the right place that it's, it's important. One size doesn't fit all. You really got to have a functional culture to get away, I think, with um, with having different comp models for different parts of your sales team. But I think in a lot of businesses, it's really important. Yeah. You know, I'll share with you sort of my thoughts on, on compensation overall. So this is not just to do with sales folks, but I think the model works. And, and that is this notion of there's, there's compensation. There's kind of, I'll call it base level compensation based on your individual skill set. So you make a certain salary because of your experience, you know, the, the market demands that I pay you a certain amount of money to get you to come work here. So that's sort of the base. And then I think there's a variable component based upon your individual performance. And then I think there's an other variable component 
based upon the performance of the organization. So I like to tie those three things together. So, so that this, this sort of plays to the point that what the organization does is just as important as what the individual does. And, and that the notion of for us to have a successful business I have to have my sales folks working together. I have to have them engaged with the product development folks. I, I can't have this lone wolf going around out there just looking out for themselves. I have to sort of bring, have some element that sort of brings them together as a team. And that's, that's why I like to have three components. I like to have the base. I like to have this individual element. And then I like to have a team element. And oftentimes in, in my past, what I've done on the team element is I make it a function of profit sharing. So everybody gets a certain slice of the pie based upon the profits of the business. And, and that model I have found works quite well. Totally agree, Bela. It's, you know, you incentivize what you want, right? And you want people to interact. You want people to be a great performer individually. You want people to be a great team member and you want people to do things that are aligned with the organizational goals. So why not build a comp model that fits that? So couldn't agree more. All right. What do you think? Should we wrap it up? I think so. All right. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope you found this episode interesting and thought provoking just like we did. If you have questions about what we've discussed, as always, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. And even better, tell somebody you know, and maybe we can get them as a listener as well. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. Once again, thanks for spending the time with me this week. And uh, we'll see you next time from a very snowy Munster, Germany. I say Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>